John chapter 7, and I will begin reading at verse 10, verses 10 through 18. John chapter 7, beginning at verse 10. John chapter 7, beginning at verse 10. But when his brothers had gone up, then he also went up to the feast, but not openly, but as it were, in secret. Then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, Where is he? And there was much complaining among the people concerning him. Some said, He is good. Others, No, on the contrary, he deceives the people. However, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. Now, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. And the Jews marveled, saying, How does this man know letters having never studied? Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. Amen. After the confession of Peter in chapter 6, you remember that confession. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. After that confession, we're taken into various opinions from unbelievers about who Christ is. In the other Gospels, Jesus asks his disciples, he says, who do men say that I am? A prophet, Elijah, so on and so forth. Here, what John does is he, in essence, gives us the same truth, but he does it in narrative form. First, those of unbelievers who are most intimately acquainted with Jesus, and those were his brothers. And we saw that last week. And what did they want? Well, these men, they wanted Christ to go up and to make himself known and to seek glory for himself. And Jesus says to them, no, now is not the time, now is not the season for me to receive glory from men. That comes later. Now, we get to hear a little bit more from those who don't know Jesus, they don't have an intimate relationship with him, but they know of his teaching, they know of his miracles, the Jews. And then we have Jesus' response to them. So first, note the various opinions. Now, as Jesus' brothers, they leave, right? They were were compelling him, hey, come, let's go down to the feast. You know, a person who preaches and teaches the the things that you're preaching and teaching 
They don't do this in secret. They don't, they don't preach and teach in a corner. Come, 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 come with us. And as I ref, uh, made reference last week, the way that they would travel into the city would be in a family, basically a caravan, just a huge number of people. And that's not how Jesus wanted to go. He refused to go. He wanted to avoid the crowds because it was not yet time for him to be glorified. Remember back in chapter 6, verse 15, they wanted to make him king by force. Now if he entered the city with, you know, 100, 200 people, it would be pretty easy for them to uh, think, hey, now is the time. Now is the time. So, he wanted to avoid the crowds. It was not yet his time. It was not yet his time. So he goes up secretly. And this is not out of fear. Uh, we're going to see that he gets there at the middle of the feast. He stands up and he preaches and he teaches openly. But Jesus did not want glory from men. That's not why he came into the world. He came into the world to suffer and to die. We, this is a principle that we have to remember. As Christians, uh, we have this hearty desire for all men to honor Christ. Right? And that's a good desire because we know who he is. Our, our eyes have been opened, right? We've been given new hearts and a new mind. And we think that just with great ease, as we explain what Christ has done for us and what he can do for others, that everyone who hears this message is just going to receive it with great joy. But that's not the case. Right? What does Paul, Paul says? We are fools for Christ's sake. And that's what the world counts us. Christ understood this. He knew that the world would hate him because he testified that the world was evil, that there was darkness in the world. And he had to reassure his disciples often, look, if they hated me, they're going to hate you also. The world's not going to love us. The world's not going to love us because of our devotion to the Lord Jesus. And you know, I'm not a doomsday prognosticator, but the world may grow, is, is growing, and may rapidly grow increasingly hostile to us. Therefore, these passages like this, they, they note to us some of uh, the approaches that we can take, right? We need to be as harmless as doves, but wise as serpents. Jesus was no fool. God sent his son into the world to accomplish a particular mission, right? And it was a mission on behalf of his people to redeem them. And what Jesus did was he acted with great wisdom. And we must imitate that wisdom as we seek to accomplish the mission God has given to us. We have brothers and sisters that we've never met throughout all of the world. And some of them give their life for the sake of Christ. And that is part of God's plan and purpose for them. It might be God's plan and purpose for us. It doesn't look like it in this country. But we can use a great deal of wisdom 
in accomplishing what God wants us to, as Christ does here. Verse 12, And there was much complaining among the people concerning him. And here this word complaining is the word for uh, murmuring that we've seen before in this gospel. But here the way that it's used is there was discussion going on. And here we enter into their opinions of him. Some said he is good. You've heard this from people. People who aren't Christians. You know, Jesus was a great moral example, a great leader. He was sacrificial, so on and so forth. They give praises of him. Others said no. On the contrary, he deceives the people. He leads them astray. He leads people astray from the truth. He points them to, to uh, a moral standard that is unrighteous or unjust. He, he preaches and he teaches this uh, evil doctrine of substitutionary atonement where somebody has to be punished for my sins so that I can have a right standing with God. These views, these opinions, they still exist today. We shouldn't be surprised that they exist today. They existed when Jesus was walking around the world preaching and teaching. This, this, uh, Jesus was not widely accepted. People weren't opening the doors to their synagogues to allow him to preach. You know, he wasn't doing any conferences. He didn't have nationwide Zoom meetings. That's not how Jesus was received. There was much criticism about Jesus. And that is to be understood. Jesus did not come into the world to bring peace. Now, what does that mean? Right? And Jesus tells us this in, in Matthew chapter 10. I want to read Verses. So turn there with me. Matthew chapter 10. I'm going to read a number of verses. Um, the, the verses are very straightforward. Uh, 24 through 39. To put this in context. Because I think that we need to have a very clear understanding. That Jesus did not come to bring peace. This kind of division that was going on. This, this complaining. This murmuring. This discussion among the people. That, that is what Christ does. That is what his teaching does. And as we enter into the world, this is, these are the kinds of things that will happen. So beginning at verse 24 in Matthew chapter 10, here, here Christ. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple to be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of his household? Therefore, do not fear them, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed, and hidden that will not be known. Their unrighteousness will be exposed, and your faithfulness to me will be revealed." Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. And what you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. But rather fear 
Him, God, who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your Father's will. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. No matter how many or how little you got, He knows every one. These kinds of passages are meant really to, to put some power into the Christian, some courage and some boldness. This shame that you will experience, even up to the point of death, God knows, and he is there with you. Verse 31, do not fear, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows, Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. Isn't that ironic? What happened in John chapter 7 with his own brothers. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take up his cross and follow me Follow my footsteps is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses it for my sake will find it. Jesus did not come into the world to bring peace. When we, when we think about peace, what we think about is a worldwide, universal, indiscriminate peace where everybody gets along. And that's not what Jesus came to bring. That's not the kind of peace he ushers in in his first coming. The kind of peace that he gives is the most important peace. And it is the peace that we can have with God through his person and work. That is more important than every and anybody in this valley getting along with you. Now, of course, Jesus is not saying that you have to be a jerk, right? Just a disrespectful No, that's not his point. What he is saying, though, is that you do not hide that you are my disciple. You make it very clear that you believe in me, why you believe in me, and why other people ought to believe in me, which means that you have to talk to men about their sin and their need for a savior and how to be right with him. That takes courage. That is true courage. That, that, is, that is really what it means to be a, a man, or to be a woman, is to live in such a way where you do not hide the fact that you believe in Jesus, that you trust in Him alone. And of course, that message is going to be the aroma of death to some and the aroma of life to others. Remember this.
So you have these varying opinions. Then, and they continue now, because Jesus did not come to bring peace. So much was uh, Jesus hated that no one, verse 13, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. And here, of course, that term Jews, Jewish leaders. The Jewish leadership hated Jesus. They wanted, the reason is that they wanted glory from men. They wanted the, the crowds and the people to, to look at them with reverence and with honor and with respect and with praise. They wanted that from the people. You know, they never got dirty. They never assisted the people in any way. They were just basically there as figureheads to receive praise from the people. And that's what they wanted. And Jesus didn't come that way. Jesus came to serve and not to be served and to give his life as a ransom for other people. So that was repulsive to them. Because what that drew out of those whom God was, those people among them who were longing for the Messiah, what that drew from them was love and affection. And the, even the little children note it, right? When he enters into Jerusalem, who are those who are praising? It's the little children. Because they, they get from Jesus this, um, this image of a great deliverer and king. They know exactly who he is. So they sing his praises. There's that. Um, I, I talked to Logan about this. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to try to work this into one of my seminary papers. Because I think it's important. And it's, it's, it's this theme in the Bible. John picks it up in 1 John. And he's often referencing or saying to the people of God that they are his little children. And he speaks to them in, in this setting that they're his little children because they ought to listen to how he instructs them about good and evil. Right? And this is how you know that you are a child of God, if you keep his commandments. Right? This language of being a little child. Jesus uses it too in the Gospels. He says, unless you're like one of these little children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. What he's referring to there is the innocence and a trust that a child has in the father, in their parents. In the garden, that is what Adam and Eve were supposed to be, little children. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was the test, right? It's like when I say to my kids, there's cookies up there. Don't touch the cookies. Right? It's a test of obedience. Would they remain little children or would they seek to know the difference between good and evil autonomously? Or would God be able to be the one who said to them, don't do that? And they trusted in him, him enough to say, okay, because you say so, I won't do it. This is what Jesus is attempting and this is what he uh, little children saw this because of their uh, innocence. I don't mean sinless perfection. But the Jewish leaders, what they saw was somebody who was drawing the people to, to themselves. So they wanted to kill him. 
But Jesus begins to preach in the middle of the feast. Why the middle of the feast? Well, you know, people are getting there. Everybody's excited. They're happy. They're having all of these conversations about Jesus. And, you know, they're about three days into this seven-day feast. And now he hasn't showed up. You know, maybe it's the fourth day of the feast, right? And he still hasn't showed up. So the conversation probably dies down. And what Jesus does is he goes into the temple and he begins to teach. Uh, This was something only only the Jewish, uh, the Levites in particular, and the high priest would do. Most of the time when you see teaching, particularly Paul, of course, in the book of Acts, where does he go? He goes to the synagogues. Because the synagogues were the local places where any man can come and teach. But Jesus goes right into the temple. And as they're celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles, he begins to teach them. And listen to what they say. How does this man know letters, having never studied? They marveled at his teaching. This is not necessarily good, right? And Jesus is a... um, just a master teaching. And uh, here's what's amazing. John doesn't tell us what he was teaching. He doesn't, he doesn't tell us here. He just says, they marveled. They were in awe of him. And the way that he taught wasn't like the rabbis. This is why they say this, that he has never studied letters. What they don't mean that he didn't know his alphabet. All Jewish boys learned their alphabet and um, had to memorize large portions of the Bible, all of those things. So the issue is not that he was an illiterate person or that Jews in general were illiterate. What they mean by this is that um, they say elsewhere this way, he doesn't teach like our teachers. The way that they would teach was they would constantly, so they made a statement and they were constantly quoting a rabbi and another rabbi and another rabbi and another rabbi and another rabbi. And what Jesus is doing is he's just opening up the word of God. That's what he constantly does. He's preaching the word to the people. Jesus teaches the people the word of God. And because he teaches with such power and with such authority, they marvel at him. And this should be Uh, again, this in itself is not a virtue that they were taken back by his teaching. But how many of you are marvel at Christ's teaching? And when I say that, I don't mean my sermons. I mean his teachings in this book. Do you give sufficient regard to reading the word, to praying over the word, to meditating upon the word? to thinking about what Christ says in the Bible, to be taken back, to be drawn in, as it were, to marvel at Christ and what he says. Consider just some of the statements that he makes beginning at chapter 5. He says, my father has been working until now, and I have been working in chapter 5, verse 17. That, that is an unbelievable statement. His heavenly father, so this is a Jewish man. He's standing with Jewish people. They know his mom 
his stepdad, they know his brothers, they know his sisters, they know he's a carpenter. And he says that his father is God, and as long as his father has been working, he has been working. That is an amazing statement. That Jesus is saying, I'm eternal. And he's standing there in the midst of the people. Not, not only am I eternal, listen to what he says in chapter, chapter 6, verse 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. Not only am I eternal, but I give eternal life. And this is the way that I do it. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. Not only am I eternal, not only do I give eternal life, but the way that I do it is I die to give it. And he does that for us, for his own people. We should marvel at his teaching because his teaching, as he says in verse 16, my doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. What a, what a statement. Does that sound like a contradiction to you? My doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. It's not. Because of how he says it. So, uh, let, let me give a, uh, an analogy. It's not perfect. But if I were to say, my house is not my own, but the house of her who lives with me. What am I saying? Huh? That's right. It's our house. My house is not my own, but hers who lives with me. It's my house. My house. It's not my own house. It's the house of her who lives with me. It's both our house. It belongs to both of us. Jesus is saying, my teaching, the things that I am teaching you, they don't come from me. Remember, they think he's just some mortal man, some guy who's a really fancy teacher. That's what they think. And he's saying, those teachings don't derive from me, from, from a mere man. Those teachings come from God. And how do we understand this? Of course, what Jesus is saying to them is what he has been saying to them throughout this gospel. John puts it this way in John 1.1. 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Unity of essence, distinction of persons. I and the Father are one. My teaching doesn't arrive from earth. It doesn't come from here. It's not my own personal secret teaching. But what I am teaching you is the very word of God because I am the word of God. And when it comes to what the Bible teaches, this 
has to be our attitude. So when you come to uh, Bible study on Thursday, when you come to Sunday school, when we're doing the order of service, call to worship, Lord's Supper, worship through giving, preaching the sermon, when we're doing all of these things, sorry, when we're doing all of these things, that is what you ought to be listening for. The Word of God. You should make sure as a congregation that my teaching is not my own, but His who sent me. And what you need to base your life on is this Word. Your, your marriages, no matter at whatever stage they are, it could be a, a brand new one, it could be a really old one, right? But that marriage, and it must be constantly brought under the subjection of the Word of God. It's not like, yeah, we started biblically a long time ago. But there's, you know, we've not examined this thing under the Word of God. No, it must be, you must continue to bring it under the authority of God's Word. Our relationship with one another as Christian people. The things that we teach others by our actions and with our words, they must all be subject to this truth that it does not come from ourselves, but that it comes from God. And that's why it has authority. Look, if, let's say if I, if I had to go to a dentist, right? And I showed up to a dentist and um, this guy had a, you know, a huge Darwin mural in his office and, uh, you know, the picture of the monkey evolving into a man. And he just, guy was an atheist, right? But I sit down, I open my mouth, he's like, yeah, we got to fix all this stuff. And uh, he was recommended highly by someone. Um, what am I going to do? Oh, well, I'm going to let him fix my teeth, right? How about if you show up to an accountant's office and he's got a little fat Buddha you know, sit in the corner with a mask on, all right? Uh, what, what are you going to do? And then you, you know, you give him your stuff, and everything he does is legal and legit, and lo and behold, even in the state of New York, he gets you back money. The guy's a great accountant. What are you going to do? Are you going to walk out? Say, no, he's not Christian. I can't take my $5,000 from the state of New York. How about if someone is breaking into your house and you call the police and a guy who pulls up gets out of the police car, he's a Sikh, right? He has one of those things on his head. What do you do? No, 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 go back. <laughs> Would you do that? No? no? Come on. Come help me. Shoot this guy before I do. <laughs> um, well, all of those points to illustrate is that in, in those areas, right, um, I'll accept an unbeliever, right, to, to do the work that he has to do. But when it comes to these things that we're talking about, spiritual matters, particularly the teaching and preaching of the Word of God, spiritual instruction, of course that influences all of life. But spiritual instruction, when we are receiving spiritual instruction, we must be certain that the doctrine does not reside in the person, but in the Bible. What they're teaching is the Bible. 
And how do you, how do you know? How do you know that what this person is teaching is the word of God? How do you know that? It's not just an intellectual thing, it's a moral issue. Look at verse 17. If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. Understanding, you know, I'm not doing what the rabbis did, but I'm going to quote Augustine. Understand, what John is saying here is understanding is the reward of faith. But faith worked out. A, a, a vibrant and a living faith. If you seek to understand God's word, as you grow in your understanding of God's word, your submission to his will will increase. And the more you submit your will to God's will, the more you know God. I know people who have gone to seminaries, gotten doctorates, can, you know, fluent in all of the biblical languages, understand them better than I do, and they're unbelievers. They don't believe the Bible. They're not Christians. And they would tell you, yeah, I'm not a Christian. For them, it's just a hobby. It's a, it, it's a matter of interest. Smart people don't know God at all. Because they've not sought to do God's will. And remember, when Jesus was speaking to the Jews in John chapter 6, and they asked him, what must we do to do the works of God? Believe. That's the work of God. And faith is seen in obedience to the revealed, to the revealed will of God. God. Look at 2 Corinthians with me. I think it's 1 Corinthians. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. 1 Corinthians 2, 14. The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. It doesn't receive the teaching of God. He can't receive the things of the teaching of God. Why? For they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. And they're spiritually discerned doesn't mean some spiritual fantastical power where you receive you know, visions and dreams while you're driving. What he means is it's something the Spirit gives. And only believers have this. Only believers have. The contrast, of course, the contrast is, is see, men who seek glory for themselves invent teachings. That's why when you turn on the TV, you know, and you have people like, uh, he not so much as popular anymore, I don't think, but people like Benny Hinn who say, you know, that Adam could fly into outer space and breathe underwater, right? You think to yourself, what an idiot, this man, you know? Not a scrap of evidence in the Bible about any of this kind of stuff. 
right? Or a person like uh, T.D. Jakes who, who says things like, you know, that uh, the Father is the Son, and in the, New, the Father was the Father in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, he's Jesus Christ, and uh, after the ascension of Christ, now he's the Holy Spirit. Because there's really just one God who reveals himself in three different modes. That the Bible doesn't teach that anywhere. When you have people who invent fanciful doctrines like this, Jesus addresses them in verse 18. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. That's what they want. They want to draw disciples after themselves. And what we ought to do is we would reject all of that. If the words that they speak, if the doctrine that we are receiving does not derive from Scripture, if it, if it is not the Word of God, those people are seeking glory for themselves and we ought to reject what they're saying. So in Jeremiah 23.16, look at the contrast. The Lord says, Do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you. They make you worthless. You think about that. When I listen to false doctrine, I become worthless. When I adopt and take false teaching, they speak a vision of their own heart. Where does it come from? Their doctrine is their own. Not from the mouth of the Lord. In Ezekiel 13.3, he says, Woe to the foolish prophets who follow their own spirit and have seen nothing. No. And that is not what Jesus did. That's why the people marveled. He proclaimed the word of God unadulterated, and that is what we should seek. And this is why the world hated him. This is why his brothers didn't believe in him. This is why the crowds didn't believe in him, because he had set himself to follow God, to proclaim the word of God. And because of this, his own people did not receive him, but all who did receive him, he gave the right to become the children of God. Jesus gives us an example of humility, a magnificent example of humility. He sought the glory of God the Father and not his own glory. And that is the way that we should live. He says, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. So brothers and sisters, remember, the world will not love you because you're a Christian. Yet in spite of that truth, what we ought to do in humility and in dependence upon God is live in light of and speak in light of what the, what the Word of God says. What we need to do is seek the glory of God and then leave the rest in God's hands. And pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for your Word. And we are so humbled that you and your kindness uh, would 
Give us the scriptures that reveal who Christ is. Help us, Lord, to grow in our knowledge and in our confidence in your word. And may we live and speak as men and women who believe the scriptures. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.